So as after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel, and Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. And this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we humbly ask now as we open the word of God as an act of worship to continue now in worship of you to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and lives this day from your very word. We ask prepare our hearts and speak to us now by your Spirit's ministry. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think speaking personally from my own life, one of the biggest challenges to the Christian life is perhaps something we might call the self-life. Now, when I say the self-life, what I'm talking about is that tendency within all of us that we have to rule and govern our own lives kind of the independent spirit of man that causes us to kind of naturally chart and gravitate and and sort of then almost navigate our own course in life it's the spirit of man that makes us want to make our own decisions to kind of be in charge of what we would prefer to do with our own lives according to our natural desires our own ideas or preferences uh, it's that spirit within us that makes us act independent of the Lord and by that I mean independent of seeking the Lord what he would want for our life and actually maybe pausing to ask him first or waiting for his instruction or if he asks us to do something different than what we think would be best that we would instead yield to that and by nature we often if we're just very honest tend to just do what we want uh, a lot of times we tend to just sort of jump into something and ask the Lord we pray afterwards the Lord would bless it because uh, we want him to bless it rather than waiting maybe sometime to the Lord might actually show us what he 
he wants uh, and knowing then that his blessing would be audited. And we many times pursue what we please, what would satisfy our own interests and kind of then just tend to do what we want and when we want and we attempt what appears good to us. We think a lot of times even as Christians that you know we have a pretty good reasoning capacity. I mean I'm walking with the Lord now so I'm kind of spiritual so I can kind of just measure that situation up and kind of know what to do by way of experience but the self-life or the independent spirit of our natural man quite frankly is probably one of the greatest enemies in the Christian life to us walking in the will of God it's the self-life that keeps the sinner from coming to Christ for salvation it's that independent spirit of a person that doesn't want to embrace the reality of actually letting someone else be in control of their life and so many people don't submit to jesus christ they won't come to him for salvation because they are still struggling with the self-life and it's just too hard to have the courage to put the faith they need to in christ to save them to admit they're a sinner and they humbly need to be saved and they're not good in and of themselves and that they actually would do better if somebody else directed their life who is the lord jesus but it's also the self-life that stumbles the christian the saint from experiencing the life jesus intends for us remember jesus sort of uh, reduced Christian discipleship in Luke chapter 9 really to very simple terms he said if any man will come after me let him deny what himself take up his cross daily and then follow me that this is an important thing and Jesus desires to bring us from the self-life to the submitted life where we would follow his direction let him lead us and I think this story illustrates that Jesus wants to teach the value of waiting for him and waiting for his direction and following his direction rather than in contrast being self-directed and I think we see that in this story remember the backdrop simply is this we're post-resurrection now Jesus has risen from the dead. We've seen already a few times where he's made appearances to different individuals at different times in different places, stepping out of the spiritual dimension into the physical dimension, again, indicating, revealing that he was alive, revealing that to his disciples at different times, speaking to them about spiritual truths, about the kingdom of God, which would be helpful, and even granting them some pretty powerful spiritual experiences. And with that backdrop, if you look with me in verse 1, our text goes on to tell us in John's Gospel, after these things, these few resurrection appearances, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. So John's recording just another one of these manifestations of Jesus after he's come back to life from the dead, Another time when Jesus chose to step out of the spiritual dimension into the natural, into the physical to show his disciples once again he was alive to interact with them. John's just giving record now of another one of these times where Jesus made an appearance in his resurrected form. And Jesus was always using these appearances and these meetings in his resurrected body to speak to them and to teach them and show them things about himself 
or about spiritual life or what the kingdom of God meant and would sort of mean as they move forward and expanded his kingdom once he ascended back to his father's right hand in heaven at the throne. And three times, I don't know if you noticed in just our reading initially, the Holy Spirit repeats the same statement in this passage of these 14 verses using purposeful repetition. Two times in verse 1, the statement appears, and then again, it's reiterated at sort of the close of this little vignette or story in verse 14. That repetitious statement is this. You see it there in verse 1. Jesus showed himself. Three times that's emphasized in this passage. Jesus showed himself. The idea is he revealed himself. Jesus directly made himself known that he might allow people to see him. And though times, I'll be the first to agree, though times certainly throughout the history of God's work and how he did things, though times have changed and the Lord is working in different ways, he's not living among us in the flesh now. It's not a few days after he's risen from the dead. But I tell you this, the heart of Jesus has never changed. The Bible says he is the same today, yesterday, forever. The Lord never changes in his nature and his heart and his ways. And because of how much it helps us when people see the Lord, if you understand what I mean by that, because of how much we benefit by seeing the Lord, I believe Jesus at times is still wanting to work in personal and powerful ways like this in our lives. And what I mean by that is that at times today still Jesus wants to show himself to us. He wants to show himself to us personally. He's not partial just to Peter and James and John and these disciples. He wants to at times show himself to us that we might see the Lord, that we might sense and recognize, wow, he's alive. And he's working in our life and doing things and letting us see what he's like. And perhaps this morning you can very clearly relate maybe to a time in your life or maybe times in your life or situations when we sometimes as Christians maybe might say something like this. Wow, the Lord really showed up. Or we say, oh, I mean, man, the Lord really showed himself in that situation. And we as Christians even use those statements when we at times realize the Lord kind of showed himself to us. He showed something to us about himself where he showed up in some way or demonstrated his work and that he was doing something. And what a wonderful thing to experience that. And because Jesus wants to be continually involved in our lives, I love the way verse 1 even reads here for us. The Holy Spirit tells us after these things, Jesus showed himself, I have it underlined, Again, I like that word. He had already done it a few times, but it says Jesus showed himself again. The idea there is a fresh revelation, a new revelation. He showed himself again on that day, which was different than the week before. He showed up and showed himself again. And let me just say, continually, we should always be praying and longing for fresh revelation from the Lord. That we should have a heart desire and a prayer that we want new revelation from the presence of the Lord. That what he has done in times past for the people of God, for prior generations of the church, what he's done in the past, maybe in our own life. Maybe we can reflect back to a time early in our Christian walk or when we were part of another ministry. Oh, wow, look, the Lord showed up and look what he did and he was moving. And, and, and sometimes as Christians, we're solely so glamorizing the past. 
When the reality is, is God wants us to live in the present. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, reaching forward to the things which are ahead. And I found in my Christian life that typically, if I am to take hold of what the Lord wants, if I'm to put my hand out and take hold of what the Lord wants, sometimes the reason I can't reach out and take hold of the present or the future is because I'm still holding on to something from the past. And it says here, Jesus showed himself again in a new way, in a, in a new hour, in a new day. And I think for us, we should long and have a heart and a prayer desire, Lord, show up again. Lord, show yourself again. Lord, what you did in that generation with your people, Lord, what you did at this point in my life, Lord, show up again, move again. Demonstrate your presence and your power in new ways in this day when we need you just as much. And John says here to us in verse 1, this is the way that he then showed himself. He wants us to know the exact way it happened. The location we read there in verse 1 was at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples were very familiar with this area because most of them were fishermen and they had lived and worked these waters so verse 2 then goes on to explain to us how the story unfolded. It says it was Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, that would be, and two other disciples who were together. Now, the Bible tells us, verse 2 here, seven of Jesus' disciples were assembled together. Five of them there in verse 2 are identified by name. Two are purposely left unnamed. They're left anonymous by the Holy Spirit as he's prompting John to record these things. Now, we know from verse 7 that one of those five disciples also was John himself, this gospel writer, because he identifies himself down in verse 7. However, the Holy Spirit knew all seven. And one, he still chooses to leave anonymous. He doesn't name in this story or experience here. I think perhaps maybe it's so that we can insert our name in there. Because many a times we read the experiences in the word of God and, and we realize those become our life experiences as well as Christians. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to read God's word at times and to perhaps, if you would, apply the things we're learning to ourselves, putting ourselves in the boat with them and learning the lessons they were learning and realizing we often go through the same things. I'll tell you this, I really believe it is the wise Bible reader who does not just go to the word of God looking for spiritual information, but is the wise Bible reader who goes to the word of God, a living book, it's alive, and goes to the word of God not just searching for more spiritual information and intellectual exercise or wanting to feel more spiritual or smart, but inserts himself into the text personally and finds instead spiritual instruction, not just spiritual information. Lord, what is this saying to me? What am I reading in my... What is this for me? And letting it apply to our own lives, that it goes from being an intellectual experience to something that is a, a spiritual experience, where, Lord, wow, that's speaking this to me. This is something you're trying to say to me here and actually learning from it. Well, verse 3 then tells us Simon Peter, as they're together, the seven of them that day, Peter, he's an initiator by nature. We know his temperament. He says to the disciples, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, okay, we're going with you also. 
Now follow what happens here. I think this is very important and critical to the lesson, the life lesson Jesus was teaching. As the disciples at this point in time historically are sort of in, you could almost describe it kind of a brief waiting period. It's sort of a a transitional time or season that the Lord has put them in temporarily, a waiting mode, but Peter can't handle inaction. It just does not set well with his temperament. He always needs to be doing something. And, And because of that, what does he do? He leads a fishing expedition. He has an idea on his mind, so he launches out into his own idea. And as he launches out into his own idea, because he can't take the inaction, in so doing, we see here in the text, he influences others in the process. Now consider what I mean by this, what's happened. Peter and many of the disciples were occupied as full-time fishermen, right? Then Jesus comes into their life, and Jesus calls them into not only following him, but to follow him in full-time ministry. The Bible says they left everything behind. That lifestyle, their occupations, everything, and they became what? Fishers of men. And then for the next three years, they traveled with Jesus. They served with Jesus. They saw the works of God. They were ministering together with Jesus full time. And they, no doubt, became very accustomed to this pattern of living with the Lord and working with the Lord and ministering for the Lord. And I'm sure it was very fulfilling. It was exciting. It was an incredible experience. But now, just a few weeks ago, what happened? Jesus died. And when Jesus died, God's plan sort of begins to take a change and a transition as things are going to begin to develop in a new way in the next season. And basically what happened when Jesus died, if we were to be honest, is his public ministry activity and the disciples partnering in it sort of took a brief pause. You could almost say it kind of took like a brief sabbatical. His public ministry came kind of to a halting stop. And all of a sudden the disciples now who had been ministering with him enter into a time that is more about spiritual reflection than it is actually about spiritual work and activity. And they're kind of in this brief holding pattern, considering the events, this was what was best for the Lord's future plan. Jesus' presence physically is not with them anymore. That's a big change. He's now risen from the dead. They know that. He's showing up periodically. He's saying things to them and teaching things. He's showing them a few things, giving them instruction. He will continue for about a month's time before he ascends back to heaven at the right hand of the Father to continue to do this, even meeting with certain individuals, Mary and Thomas and Peter, to address unique and specific things in their lives that the Lord needed to deal with them personally. And then he was going to re-engage them back into his service. But for a brief season here, as a part of God's plan, we sort of see sort of a, a time of kind of divinely ordained inactivity. Where for a brief season, for the time from his death on the cross to his ascension back into heaven and then the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost, it's almost divinely ordained inactivity. But as I said, look at verse 3. Peter's high energy personality, this grates on his natural temperament. And this is difficult for Peter. He doesn't do well with this. We know from the Bible, Peter, of course, his natural human temperament is what? Do. Do, talk, do, do, talk, talk, do. That was just Peter's temperament, right? That's why some of us love him in the Bible. 
Because we feel comfortable as we look at Peter and see his Peter's mind. He was one of these kind of guys. His mind is always going with constant ideas. What's next? What can we do now? How can we busy ourselves? He's the kind of person who simply is almost sort of uneasy with inactivity or rest or a pause. That just bothered Peter. It was not his natural temperament. That inner compulsion, he always felt it was time in some way or some form to always be doing something. We ought to be doing something. We have to do something. And that, that was just Peter's temperament. But listen, often our greatest strength usually in life is a lot of times our greatest weakness as well. And Peter, until he comes under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, that was his nature. We, we see it as we read the Bible, the examples we find when Peter didn't know what to say in a situation or even when he wasn't asked to say anything in a situation. What did Peter still do? He'd talk. <laughs> He'd say something. You know, there'd be times where even you read the Holy Spirit tells us in the Bible, Peter didn't know what to say, so he said... I mean, literally, the Bible actually says that of the guy. He's the one that Jesus had to say, you know, Peter, good job, revelation. But he's like, wait, I got one more thing I want to say. Then the next breath, get behind me, Satan. Now you're in the flesh, Peter. What are you to be quiet? One was good. Shh. One sentence was good enough, Peter. And this was just Peter's natural struggle as a man. Often he said things he didn't need to say. And as a result of that, sometimes the things he said weren't helpful. They were wrong. They were totally off target. And Peter as well, when he didn't know what to do in situations or even when he should have done nothing in situations, what did he do? He had to do something. That was just Peter. He felt compelled to act in some way, at least do something. But as a result, what happened with Peter? Many times he was led by his flesh. He'd try and help or act in a way he felt was best just to be occupied or busy. And we just saw recently, right, where he takes out the sword and he just starts swinging the sword around because he felt he had to do something. You can't just not do anything and be still and know that he's God. You got to do something. And what does Peter do? He stirs up a whole bunch of problems because he felt he had to do something. Swinging a sword, hurting people, causing issues. And again, Peter, what's he doing in verse 3 here? He's proposing an idea that he needs to be active. He just, he just I, I, I'm going fishing. He just throws out his idea for whatever the reason why. And even if Peter had good intentions, it does appear we cannot refute. He's making decisions independent of the Lord's direction in his life. It's not the Lord giving him that idea. Maybe he was just tired of waiting for new direction. So he needed to jump into his next assignment, whether it was his assignment or the Lord's assignment. Maybe he just has a personality where he, he, he wants to try and be responsible and provide. And he knew fishing from before. And maybe he thought ministry is before is over, boys. We need to go back and start fishing now. Things have changed. Regardless, there's no mention of prayer or receiving guidance from Jesus. The last word he had from Jesus regarding fishing was you shall be fishers of men. And the last encounter he had with Jesus was when Jesus said to him, I'm sending out you even as the Father sent out me. But after just a little inactivity, it only took a few days before the Lord gives the next instruction. Peter has an idea that develops in his mind and he's got to get active. He's not, I'm going fishing. What a fitting picture, let me say again, of self-will. Of self-will. Not being spirit-led, but of self-will, own idea, need to do something. And there are times in all of our lives where, where we kind of like Peter, we say, uh, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm going, I'm here, I'm going, I'm doing this. And, and a lot of times it's self-will. Peter's ideas may appear even to be acceptable to him. And maybe they were even, as I said, very good on the surface. Nothing wrong in and of itself with going fishing. He was staying busy and productive. And you know, well, good job, Peter. You're not lazy. You're... But let me just say this, and please hear this statement. Good ideas and godly intentions even are not the same thing as following God's instructions. You might have a good idea. I may even have a godly intention connected to my idea. But that is still not the same thing as following God's instructions. This is an important lesson for all of us. Notice Peter's idea and actions don't just affect him. What happens in verse 3? They directly influence and impact others. It says the others just joined in the bandwagon conversation. Okay, well, we're going with you. If you're going fishing, Peter, we're going fishing. Sounds like a good idea. And they just gravitate to go along with him. Always remember, it's not just, ladies and gentlemen, what we do and what we don't do in life. It's not always just what we say it's also how does what I do and how does what I say influence other people as well? Because we live lives that are interconnected with others, intertwined. So I always have to ask, how does what I'm doing, my decision here, my actions here, my reactions here, my responses here, how does my action, what I'm saying, the things I'm doing, how does that affect others connected to me? Because whether you want to realize or not, you're connected to people. You're connected to people. And a lot of times our actions have much more effect and influence upon other people than we often recognize or would be willing to admit sometimes if we just have that, well, I want to go do this or I feel like responding this way or I just want to say this in a moment. And we important that we recognize this to ask, are people guided in directions away from the Lord's will because of me or because of what I did? That's never a good thing. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. They say, hey, we're going with you. But Jesus has a way at times to deal with our good ideas. Verse 3. They went out and immediately got into the boat, notice, and that night they caught what? Nothing. They, they, they caught nothing. Look at the outcome and result of Peter's personal idea that he pursued. They ended up having no success. They don't find what they're after. They end up with empty nets. And granted, that can happen when we all just fish naturally, those who enjoy fishing anyway. But we see as the story unfolds, don't miss the reality. This is definitely Jesus trying to teach them a life lesson here. That's very evident in the story. And it's a fitting illustration of what often happens when we enter into things, as we all can do, as I said, and we pursue or enter something or do something that is not directed by the Lord. That's not something he asked us to do or that was guided by him, but maybe we just were led by self-will to do something or maybe we were being guided by our own feelings in a situation or our own idea about something or some compulsion or desire and so therefore we just acted or maybe it was just a, a driving impulse to satisfy some need. And as human beings, let's just be very candid, there are a lot of things we do just because of some inner need inside of us. And we're trying to satisfy some inner need or quirk in our nature or personality. So we're doing something because it's self-fulfilling or self-validating or you know, the, these kind of things. We really enjoy doing something. So therefore, if we enjoy it, hey, 
Peter probably liked fishing. I enjoy this. So if we enjoy it, then we think we should do it. And again, we have to be careful because oftentimes if we do things not being led and guided by the Lord, the outcome can much be the same as we see here. What is it? Failure and emptiness. It's failure and emptiness. It doesn't work out. They end up empty. And sometimes we see this in Bible stories. We've experienced in our own lives disheartening outcomes that may just be divinely caused by the Lord because of what's best for us. I don't know about you, but I have found in my life that Jesus is not afraid to let me fail. He's not afraid to let me come up empty. He's even not afraid, imagine this, to let things not work out in my life sometimes. If in such a way that becomes a way for him to get my attention, to teach me something, or to redirect me in some life lesson or altering my course. Now that being said, listen, don't be confused or discouraged if you know that the Lord has truly told you to do something and you know for certain the Lord spoke to you and you obeyed the Lord and perhaps now there's a delay in the promise being fulfilled or the fruit of what you obeyed the Lord in doing. Don't be discouraged and confuse the two. But it is important to be honest before the Lord if you know that you possibly launched out into something perhaps that was your idea and not his. Because when we do that, we may often find the same outcome as they do here. Well, verse 4 says, When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So after a long night, efforts resulting in empty nets and failures, morning dawns, Jesus appears on the shore now because he wants to help them learn from this. And listen, this is the graciousness of Jesus. He never allows me to fail just to let me fail. But he always allows at times, even if I fail or some disappointment, they're always character lessons. They're teaching opportunities for us to grow. Well, it says here, they didn't know it was Jesus, this man on the shore. Again, it was dusk, morning light. It was hazies a few hundred yards off. So they don't know who this man is, but they can tell someone's back on the shore. One thing that's clear from the text in John's record, Jesus is back on the shore. They're out in the water. So what does that say? They launched out the sea. Jesus is back on the shore. Now, I am not a rocket science, but that usually indicates something's not right. If I've launched out the sea and Jesus is back on the shore, then that indicates pretty well to me he's not with me. In what I'm doing, he's not here. I went out to do this. He's back there on the shore still, which means, uh-oh, I'm out here doing this alone without his leading, without his presence. Look, if Jesus, we know from other stories in the Gospels with being at sea in storms, if Jesus tells you to launch out in the boat, then it doesn't matter what kind of storm shows up. If Jesus says, get in the boat and go the other side of the sea, if Jesus tells us to launch out into something and he is with us in the boat, then no matter what we endure, we're okay. We'll arrive to the other destination. And in those situations, the key is just stay in the boat. Don't abandon ship. Just stay in the boat. If the Lord told you to launch out and he's in the boat with you, just stay on board and don't panic. Now, on the other side of that, as here, if, however, we launch out into something of our own without Jesus' direction or presence, uh uh-oh, is an understatement. Because then, 
in that situation, we may work really hard and give our best effort. We may even do all things right. Listen, and you may even be a very talented person on top of that. And you may have everything going, but if the Lord is not in it, oftentimes some of the same results will happen. Disappointment, failure, emptiness in some way within. If we're followers of Jesus, think of the term followers of Jesus, it means we should seek to be what? Led by Jesus. And if Jesus says, stay here, because this is where I'm staying, then I should stay. And if Jesus says, let's launch out and go do that, then I shouldn't stay on the shore. I should launch out with the Lord and be wherever the Lord leads. It's important for us to be sensitive to that. Well, verse 5, this is any fisherman I'm not could certainly painfully relate to this. Verse 5, the man on the shore, they don't know it's Jesus, but he asked them the worst fishing question in the world. Did you catch anything? Hey, how'd you guys do last night? Did you catch anything out there? How'd it go? And the fisherman had to answer that dreaded response, uh, no, we didn't catch anything. We didn't catch anything. They said, no, we don't have any food, not one fish in the boat. Now, take note again of the picture here. Life lesson Jesus is building. After letting them pursue what they wanted for a bit, he let them go at it all night long. After allowing them to work their idea, they now hear the voice of the Lord asking them that searching question of examination, as Jesus often does thus in our lives. After he lets us maybe go at something for a while or and he'll let us but then he asks that searching question, we hear his voice kind of saying to us at some point, So, how's it going? How's that working out for you? Did you find what you're looking for? Are you fulfilled or, or are you empty? And, and ha- You've been at this for a while now, so how's it worked out for you? Are you experiencing what you're looking for? Are you, are you finding that? Are you satisfied and fulfilled? And we always have to, don't we, humbly answer honestly, no, Lord. No. No, Lord, I, I have to answer no. I, and, and Jesus makes them do what here? Graciously, he makes them face the reality of their present situation before he blesses them and helps them. He brings them to a place of self-examination. Before he can help them, he needs to first let them see the error and futility of being self-willed and self-directed because that would always impede, listen, that would always impede their ability to be spirit-led as long as they were self-directed and self-willed. So same with us. Many times the Lord has to bring us through processes where we may deal with some disappointment or failure or emptiness or whatever because we've launched. And and sometimes the Lord has to bring us through a process where he makes us confront those same kind of questions. Do you find what you're looking for in that? I let you do what you wanted. I didn't hold you back. And and, and he brings us to that same place where we kind of have to ask that searching question as we hear the Lord's voice to us and we have to honestly say in humility, no, Lord. I tried it. But no, it did not result in what I think it was going to result in. Well, rather than Jesus rebuke them harshly, look what he does, verse 6. He then said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast the net and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. So he deals with them graciously. 
They don't wait for his guidance, but he doesn't rebuke them and come down hard on them. Jesus is so gentle and gracious, teaching them a helpful lesson. And think of what he tells them to do there sincerely in verse 6 with me, if you would. Talk about an absurd command. They just fished all night long. These are professional fishermen. They fished all night long, and then they come back with empty nets, and Jesus yells out to them, Hey, just cast your net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find fish. And you have to imagine in their humanity, that would be really hard to follow. Would you agree? That'd be hard to believe. I mean, that seems like a, an absurd command, but what are they learning? To follow the Lord's voice. They're learning to follow the leading of the Lord. Proverbs 3 says what to us? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And Jesus tells them here to do the exact same thing in the exact same place that they had previously attempted, which resulted in what? Failure and complete frustration. And now he gives them a challenge. He gives them an instruction to do the same thing again. But follow what's happening. Once you're humbled by your own failure and emptiness... And once you become truly aware of your desperate need and you've kind of been humbled in yourself, it's amazing how a person becomes what? Very teachable and very receptive. All of a sudden now you're willing to receive direction. You want instruction. You have a teachable spirit. So he commands them to do the exact same thing that they had failed at miserably in the same place and this time in just one catch what happens? They catch more fish in one casting of the net than they called all night long working hard in their own energies and effort. Now, why does the Lord choose to do this? I think to teach them an important spiritual lesson. It doesn't matter what we do or what we don't do. It doesn't matter how capable or talented a person I may be. If the Lord has not told us to do it and we're just acting in our own idea, or the ideas of others, or if we're doing things in our own efforts apart from Jesus' involvement or help, no matter how hard we try, no matter how long we keep at it, the outcome oftentimes is failure and disappointments and emptiness. And here's why I think, because the Lord does not want me anyway to prosper independent of Him. That's not good for me. Maybe it may be good for you. <laughs> it is not good for this person to prosper in any way or in anything independent of the Lord because that allows me to think somehow there is something of my own sufficiency or capability and it makes me begin to detach and the Lord wants me to stay dependent upon him to let him have full influence and leadership and governance over my life now on the other hand when the Lord is in something and he's directed it that's what happens now here in verse 6 with less work and minimal human effort, the blessing can be quite overwhelming. The lesson they're learning here is not to strive to try and do things in their own flesh and try and what? Make it happen. Now they're not trying to make it happen on their own. They're just being led by the voice of the Lord. It's not, well, we just got to do something. We got to do something. If you just keep doing something, eventually something will happen. Not if Jesus doesn't want it to. And here they're now learning from the Lord, letting the Lord speak to them, hearing his voice. He's guided. And what happens now? It's a work of the Lord. So Jesus, by his power, does it, and they just become passive recipients. Think very realistically. Consider, how much space was there between success and failure? 
I've seen one of these fishing boats when I was in Israel. It's probably about six to seven foot wide. So there's a few feet between success and failure. A few feet. In the natural, what that indicates very simply is this. Jesus as creator, ruler of creation, guess what he was doing? Prior to this, all night long, he was holding all the little fishies back. Dumb little fish, he would start swimming towards the net. He'd go, uh-uh, that way. And all night long, he's holding the fish back until the very next morning. Then he, okay, there you go. Go die. And you know, <laughs> just, I'm sorry for an animal activist. That's just funny to me. Um, but all night long, what's he doing? He's basically holding back. You could say, if you want to be genuinely honest with yourself, he was withholding the blessing previously. And he now controlled when he wanted to bless. But he basically was holding back all night long. And the Lord may just do this in our lives at times for his purposes. For his good purposes in wanting your best. Because he loves you. And he loves me. And he wants to develop character and keep our hearts right. That's what matters. And what he may at times, I know it may be hard to hear, hold something back in some way. He may keep back something that we think we ought to experience or we want to experience. The only difference at this point is they've now put in their net at the Lord's leading. He's guiding and it makes all the difference in the world when he was involved. Because the Bible says that with God, all things are possible. And sometimes the Lord brings us through these situations to teach us similar lessons like this. When you're self-willed, I may just frustrate your efforts, Tony. When you're self-directed, I may just not let it work out to get your attention in some way that we might learn things that are valuable lessons. I mean, of all lessons, things like what? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And sometimes we all need these experiences in our lives. And then the Lord may then, after teaching us it, tell us to then go back and imagine this, do the same thing in the same place because now he's leading and his hand will be upon it and things can be completely different. Verse 7 says, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, here's what happens. As this incredible experience happens and all of a sudden they just cast the net back in after a night of failure and the direct result of that is an incredible amount of fish, John has an instant flashback. It triggers his memory banks. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. You should put it in your notes. You should acquaint yourself with it. Very simply, the Bible tells us this. Prior to this time, years ago, they were out fishing all night long. They came back in. They caught nothing similar to this. Jesus says to Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat? Put out a little off land. I want to teach the people. I need a little better amphitheater effect. Sure, gets on board. They push out a little bit offshore. He begins to teach the people. As soon as he's done the Bible study, amen. He says, hey, why don't you guys launch out for a catch? Now they say, as professional fishermen, we've worked all night long and we caught nothing. Fish aren't biting. The hole's not you know, productive there. We, we just know. And, and their minds are, are struggling, no doubt, in their humanity. But they say this. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the nets. They launch out into the water. They let down their nets. And they catch so many fish, after Jesus tells them to go back out, that their nets are literally bursting and breaking. Peter falls down before Jesus and says, Depart from me. Who are you? I'm a sinful man. And Jesus then says to them, Guess what? You shall no longer be 
fishers, but now you're going to be fishers of men. So you can imagine with that experience, now look what just happened here. This happens here in this moment, and when this happens in a very similar way, John clicks in his mind and he says, this is the Lord. He did this. This is the Lord. That's the Lord that just did all this. And he discerns what's happened spiritually. And when Simon Peter, verse 7, look at it, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. Again, Peter, true to form, he can't wait for the boat to get to shore. <laughs> he just dives in and starts swimming to get to Jesus. Perhaps here his personality is working in a good way. Because he realizes, Peter does, whoa, we're out here. Jesus is back there. I need to get back close to Jesus again. And Peter, in his humility, doesn't care what people think about him. He just wants to get back to the Lord. And let me say, there, Peter's a great example. Because if you ever realize you're distant from the Lord and not where you're supposed to be, don't care what people think. It's a good thing. No delay. Get back to Jesus. Peter here does a great thing in a sense. He goes swimming back to shore Verse 8 says, the other little boats then came in. They weren't far from the land, about a 200 cubit distance off the shore, dragging their nets with the fish. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. So take notice, as they're dragging their nets to shore with the fish they just caught, they make a discovery. And what's the discovery? Very simply this, what they had gone out pursuing and striving to obtain their own way, by their own efforts, Jesus already had waiting for them right there on the shore. They come back and find a discovery. There's already a nice fire going, fish and bread being cooked. The Lord supplied as provision was made independent of their plans and activities and efforts. And he supplied. And I think the Lord was teaching them, again, this spiritual lesson that he is willing and more than able to supply for us oftentimes the things that we go out striving for and we strive for them and we try and make them happen and we chase this and we chase that and you know you know and and, and Matthew 6 Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that your father knows that you need he'll add them to you the provision the partner if you're single He'll add those things. You don't have to go striving for stuff. The, you know, the opportunities. All, look, you don't have to strive. Let the Lord do it. Because you want it to be done in a way where it's Him. And you can say, it's the Lord. We didn't make this happen. If we have to make it happen, then you've got to keep trying to keep it going. That's exhausting. And here, Jesus already had what they went out striving for. Right there, he's showing them, look, I'm, I can provide it for you at any time. It's here. They come back. They find fish and bread there, a fire going. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went up, dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Notice, though there was already a meal provided, Jesus gives them another instruction. In verse 10, he says, hey, by the way, bring some of the fish that you just caught, some of the sample of what you just experienced. Peter takes the initiative here. They're learning to live by the value of following the Lord's direction. He goes up. He's dragging it all back to shore, those nets. And take notice, I think the purpose of the Lord here is they're learning how to follow Jesus' voice is he wants them to evaluate that what he just produced and provided was through service directed by him. 
And what was the sample of that? It's almost as if he wants them to sample what he did when they followed his direction. Notice, he wants them to see the fullness and the abundance of when he blesses and supplies. It says in verse 11, don't miss the language, the nets did not just have some fish. What does it say? They were full. And it doesn't just say they were full of fish. It says they were full of large fish. And it doesn't just say there was a lot of fish. It says there was 153, which was an abundant number beyond a typical catch. And though there was so many, the net was not breaking. The idea is it was surprising. The point Jesus, I think, was trying to get them to see is, look, when I work, when I supply, when you let me do it, and when I begin to bless, it can be above and beyond your wildest dreams. It can be an overflow. It's the principle of Psalm 23. My cup runneth over. <laughs> That's how it is when the Lord, but the cup runs over. And it would be kind, wouldn't it, and sufficient if all Jesus did was just enough. Wouldn't it? I mean, if Jesus just did enough in our lives, we should be incredibly thankful. But he is so generous and kind that oftentimes his graciousness causes him to go above and beyond in our lives. And when it's him, to, you know, you, you find the spouse that you're thinking, what was I chasing that knucklehead for? Look at this. What was I doing? Or, or we finally allow the Lord to direct and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a position or opportunity or the Lord's provision comes in a way where we go, wow, this is totally the Lord. and This is way better than I was making work in 50 hours a week. And the Lord just has this way of showing to us that he wants to work and how he can well, the story concludes with Jesus saying, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Notice their questions were answered. It was a silent moment. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. So they, no question whether this was the Lord or not. True to form, here he is again. What's he doing? The greatest among them, he's the servant of all. They're eating and resting and recuperating. He's walking around serving them like a waiter and doing the humble tasks of servanthood. And Jesus quietly and graciously serves them while they rest. Notice, no hard lecture. He just lets there be golden silence because that silence was healthy because it created reflection as they were humbled in this moment. And verse 14 says, this is now, notice, the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Acts 1 says that Jesus continued appearing for about a 40-day span to his disciples by many invaluable proofs, teaching them and speaking them things about the kingdom of God. I think the question for all of us simply is this. What's the Lord showed you this morning? I hope he showed you something. What's the Lord said to you this morning? But perhaps the more important question of all is, what are you going to do about it? There is no better thing I can do, you can do, than to say, Lord, lead me. Not my will. Your will be done, Lord. I want to submit to you and I want to follow your leading because that's what's best. Let me stand together and pray.